0: I'm not sure, but I think I might already have, and she puts in quotes, postpartum depression, even though I'm still pregnant.
1: In some cases, women have a history of sexual assault or violence, and vaginal exams can be extremely
0: traumatic. I'm very lonely. None of my friends are pregnant or have babies, and COVID isn't helping. Is it possible to get postpartum depression before giving birth? So I don't trust them all that much, and I'm beginning to not trust her. Should I find
1: a new OB? I'm 25 weeks. Yes. Next question.
0: (laughs) I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm
1: Tricia Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board-certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying
0: experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. So, Trisha, I just got a text from a woman in my current class. I want to share it with you.
1: Let's hear it. You always get great stories.
0: Yeah, this one is good for you because you're a home birth midwife, and I know you don't hear these a lot. Um, She wrote, Uh, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Last Thursday, I had a sonogram and this doctor I'm not in the care of at the sonogram came in to tell me she thought an approximate weight of three pounds, four ounces was too big for a 29 week baby. It was awful. She scheduled me to return in four weeks and wanted another gestational diabetes test. I passed the gestational diabetes test with a non-fasting number of 106. And turned around and canceled my April first sonogram this week after our session on Sunday, feeling so much more in control and content with the baby's growth. That was also after the practice refused to let my husband join me for this for the imaging after they said, "We have a concern." The doctor didn't even attempt to ask questions about genetics, birth weight of my husband or me at birth, or our height. Both my husband and I are five foot eleven. <laughs> Then I found out the baby weight was measured off of the estimation of the limb size. I had to laugh. Obviously, we will likely have tall kids. So they used the femur length, I take it, and did an estimate. And then they came out and said, we have a concern. It seems you're going to have tall children like you are. Right. (laughs)
1: Like, what what are they hoping that she's going to do? Stop growing her baby so nicely? (laughs) I mean... She doesn't have gestational diabetes, so right. there's, there's not an issue there. She's tall. Her husband's tall. Her baby's measuring tall. She's going to have a tall baby or longer than average baby. We talk about this all the time. I mean, so what?
0: <laughs> I don't it's like you said what are they going to do about it anyway it's just the whole thing is ridiculous you even talking about it is ridiculous fetal right. positioning is where everyone should be putting their focus and that's that's right that's, that's the whole point I mean, yeah
1: you know they this whole the fear around big babies is so all-consuming and we just need to break it down and think about we've talked about this in our last episode on gestational diabetes that the problem with babies that are too big is the the potential risk of shoulder dystocia right which happens when you have um the uh, the way a baby lays down fat in the body and where they get bulky it's really different than just a big baby yeah what they really should be talking about is you know if you if your baby's going to be larger than average it's going to be extra important that you pay attention to fetal position your your body mechanics in late pregnancy And optimizing the baby's position for birth, and making sure that you have uh, upright and mobile labor, and you know, making sure that we're not doing things that are going to inhibit your baby, doing things in your labor that are going to inhibit your baby from getting in the best position for birth.
0: It's like the average American woman or someone giving birth in this country is going through pregnancy, hearing, "We don't want your baby to be too big. We don't want your baby to be too big." And as soon as they give birth what they hear for the next few years is we don't want your baby to be too small. We don't want your baby to be too small. It's just it's ludicrous. There are bell curves for re- with good reason and everyone's trying to get everyone at the 50% mark. There are medical indications for certain things, but none of the things we've talked about so far are medical indications of anything.
1: And what really needs to happen is that practitioners need to become more skilled and adept at um, attending the births of women whose babies might be bigger than average and how to best manage those labors without just forcing induction. I mean, that's the, that's the thing that they want to do. That's the intervention is, well, let's get this baby out sooner. Cause one, we can schedule it 2 we're under, we're controlling it three, you know, get paid a little more. <laughs> I mean, lots of good reasons. Um, but really what they need to do is Be better at managing labors where babies are a little bigger.
0: And talk to women about fetal positioning during pregnancy, which seems to never come up. All right, let's jump into our Q&A, shall we? Yes. All right.
1: The first one is on VBAC, and we are getting a lot of these questions, but clearly people have a lot of questions about VBAC. I switched to a new OB who promotes VBACs. She's great, except out of the five office visits, she's only been to about three of them. Any of my friends that had her as an OB did not have her deliver their baby. I asked if she is not at my birth, who will support my VBAC? She told me everyone in the practice supports them. However, I used the same practice with my first, and I ended up in a C-section because I was failing to progress. So I don't trust them all that much, and I'm beginning to not trust her. Should I find a new OB? I'm 25
0: weeks. Yes. Next question. (laughs) well here's the here's the thing. we can't tell you whether you need to find an O b but we would certainly say shop around. I'll just tell you what jumped out at me. It's kind of a thing that we all sometimes say, not just Trisha and me, but when you've had when you're planning a v back a step one is frequently don't give birth with the group that gave you the C section That's just there's too much there, whether they're justifying the c section, whether they're um pro c section it's just a very good starting point, not to mention any of the emotional stuff that you are uh, without question carrying, at least on a subconscious level, if not both conscious and subconscious, about seeing their faces and remembering how you gave birth with them. So just wiping the slate clean as much as possible is a really great way to go. You specifically said you don't trust them. Enough said. You said it yourself. You don't trust them. Mm. Tricia, what do you want to say?
1: I totally agree. The biggest indicator of success with a VBAC birth especially is your provider being supportive and having that trusting relationship, especially when it comes to VBAC. You really have to have that confident and trusting relationship with your provider.
0: Yeah, yeah. And good luck. We'd love to keep hearing from you. Okay, this one says, I'm not sure, but I think I might already have, quotes, postpartum depression, even though I'm still pregnant. My husband works long hours but he isn't very helpful anyway. I ask him to help me around the house, but it's never long before I have to ask again. He seems to intentionally do the bare minimum. I'm very lonely. None of my friends are pregnant or have babies and COVID isn't helping. Is it possible to get postpartum depression before giving birth? Or does this mean that I will get postpartum depression after I give birth? It is true that a fair percentage of women who end up with postpartum anxiety or depression Um, showed some symptoms in pregnancy. And that's because isolation is at the core. I mean, that doesn't mean that's going to happen, but it's really good that you're recognizing this. Agree. I also want to just point out that I noticed that you said your husband helps you with housework. Um, That says quite a lot about your relationship and how you look at it and maybe how he looks at it too. I think it's really time to have a conversation with him in advance of having the baby so that you guys can basically renegotiate um housework in your in your home and those expectations who is going to do what after the baby's born because your hands are tied almost all the time and housework gets really difficult and can be the cause of some petty struggles or big arguments between couples so i would definitely approach this issue now before you have the baby and i think the best thing is to make it so that you don't have to manage him and ask him anything but let him maybe pick several jobs that he's comfortable completely owning um, in that first year after the baby is born whether it's grocery shopping vacuuming laundry whatever it is but something that you don't ever have to stop and ask him about but that you can just trust will get done I think there's no question you're going to need support because it sounds like you already could use a lot more support so I would start by talking to him but I would also talk to a professional and see if you can work with someone starting now I would also include people in your network, your family, friends you trust, even friends of friends who might be supportive to you because the idea really is just to keep talking until you find the people who will be looking out for you, checking in with you, looking out for you, and making sure that you're getting the support that you need, whether it's from your husband or or outsourced. But it's not an option for you not to have support. It's really important.
1: Yeah, so I would just add to that that I agree that, Feeling this way now doesn't necessarily mean, it definitely doesn't mean that you're going to definitely have postpartum depression after birth. And whether or not it's an actual risk factor, because we don't really know your past medical history, if you've never had anxiety or depression before, then, you know, no, maybe this isn't a risk factor. Maybe this is just a year of being in COVID and isolation and pregnant and not having friends that are pregnant and actually just really some relationship stuff that's, you know, getting to you. So because isolation is the root cause and you're already identifying it now, pregnant, it is going to be really important to take all the steps to prevent it getting worse postpartum because it just naturally does when we're home with a baby alone all the time. But I also just want to address the relationship stuff because if you're having these issues now... Now is the time to really set new rules. Um, in our episode with Maggie, we talked about how the old contracts need to be torn up and new contracts about who does what in the house and, and how we work together needed to be, need to be developed. And one of the reasons that new parents run into so many relationship challenges and grow distant after a baby is because they don't do that work prenatally. They don't put those new rules in place. So if you are already struggling with this now, it's especially important to sit down with your partner and talk about the ways in which you're feeling that he's not there for you or the ways that you're feeling that he's not, you know, addressing your needs and make sure that you have a plan for how those needs are going to be met after the baby arrives.
0: And I'll just add that Trisha just made a reference to our episode with Maggie, <laughs> but uh, I just want to give the details that... She's referring to episode 60. It's called Love and Marriage and Baby, Interview with Maggie O'Connor. Um, we'll include the link to that in our show notes. Uh, all our episodes are on our website, birthshow.com. So it's a very convenient way to find the content you're looking for quickly. But again, we will include the, the link to that episode in our show notes.
1: All right. On to question three. A question I have is in regard to a form of distraction I heard about from a mom's group. Someone recommended that a laboring mother hold a plastic comb in her hands and squeeze it during surges. It's supposed to pinpoint acupressure points for the mother. Would something like this counteract the mother's hypnobreathing breathing exercises, or is it something that I should consider?
0: First, I've never heard of that, so I'm no expert or knowledgeable person to comment as to acupuncture points or acupressure points. Maybe Trisha can after. But with respect to um, hypnobirthing, I would have to say it does counteract what you're doing in hypnobirthing. I'd like to say it doesn't, but he- here are my thoughts and, you know, just, just do what, again, hear everyone listen to yourself, do what feels right to you. But I want you to just consider some things right now. Um, you know, I've heard of methods where people are told to focus, to stare at the painting on the wall and look at how, you know, the little, the little detail in the painting and the, the stroke of the paint and just focus, focus, focus on something or stare at the lampshade and just try to look at every little fiber of the lampshade and keep your mind on that instead of on childbirth. And I'm sure that might be um, fairly effective. But hypnobirthing is about going within. It's about a greater connection to what's happening. In addition to that, Um, It's about tuning everything else out. So anything outside of your skin is what's to be ignored. Labor isn't what's to be ignored. Um, And the only other thing I want to say is the techniques in hypnobirthing are about keeping a relaxed physiology because when we do that, we're secreting more oxytocin, which keeps you more comfortable and allows you to dilate more quickly and prepares you for a more enjoyable bonding experience and better oxygenates your blood for your baby. So any kind of tensing, I mean, if it feels right to you, and I'm not talking about after your 10 centimeters because we do tense because we get a surge of adrenaline at that point. But any kind of tensing is not something we're going for in hypnobirthing. We always want to be more relaxed. We basically want to think of the body in terms of the word limp. Trisha, do you have anything to add about this method? Have you heard that before? I I never have.
1: I actually I, I feel like I came across it recently somewhere on social media, and I kind of chuckled um, because. I think it's more less about acupressure points. Sure, a comb with all those, a fine comb with all those little teeth is going to hit some acupressure points on your hand, but acupressure is more about being specific, you know, working certain points. So I don't think it's so much about that as it is about the sensation of all those little teeth of the comb in your hand distracting you, giving your brain a different sensation to focus on than the contraction. So maybe that works for some people. I'm thinking about it separately from hypnobirthing. I'm just saying as a distraction technique for, you know, getting your mind off the contraction and putting your focus on something else, a different sensation, maybe you could try it. I kind of feel like in the intensity when labor really hits its most intense point, you're going to just want to be like throwing that comb out the window because now you're just really focusing on two different parts of your body
0: that are being overstimulated. Tricia, I just remembered when I was in labor with Vanessa, you came up to me and, and my eyes were closed and you whispered, now, Cynthia, I just want you to focus your cervix stretching around your baby's head. Was that helpful or not? <laughs> you know what? It, it was. And I tell that story in my class a lot because I remember thinking, whoa. <laughs> and then I thought, you know what? It, it sounds funny, but I realized that whenever I was in labor with my son and in, in that labor with my daughter, it's, it's. It sounds crazy, but it's easy to forget there's actually a baby in this dance with you.
1: Mm, Yeah.
0: And it helped me to think, wow, there really is a, my baby is really coming to me now. So from the moment you said that, that's what I was picturing. So uh, anyway, I just want to emphasize that you too were bringing me within. And that's what hypnobirthing is about. It's not like we're trying to escape and we think of anything but this. But I will say, while you're going within, the most delightful, wonderful thing that feels a lot better than squeezing a comb, which I would never do personally, is to have a cold washcloth on your forehead. feels amazing. Mm. Um, If you're in water effleurage, someone pouring cups of water over your shoulders feels incredible, but the cold washcloth can work anywhere. And that does help to draw the focus, but the focus is still always within. And then it's for your partner to manage everything outside of your skin. You have the harder job, but they have more to manage. That, those, I think, are, those are my thoughts. Yeah. I, I love
1: what you just said because why not, if we're going to focus our distraction, why not focus our distraction on something that's comfortable and not annoying? So I think it's the same concept, the, the water, the cold washcloth, the, the gentle touch, the massage. I mean, these are all things that we do for women in labor to help them take their focus off the contraction and put their focus on something else. But why use a prickly comb? That just sounds annoying.
0: Yeah. At best. And there's something called light touch massage, which is wonderful. So I would say, you know, combs are handy when you want to comb your hair.
1: (laughs) (laughs) How about this? If you're hearing this question and you have experience with this and it worked for you, we want to know. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. We're open minded. Yeah, that's true. If it works, tell us.
0: Well, it might work for somebody. Everything works for somebody. True. Uh, it's just, it, it's not in line with hip number thing, And it is one of my clients who sent in this question. So I would have a hard time telling her to go for it with the balance of saying, now let your body go limp and go within.
1: <laughs> right. It doesn't seem to work so well with the hip number thing. I but you made
0: a good point about acupressure points being targeted. It's not random. You're not like throwing darts. Like maybe this will hit a good point. <laughs> and then what happens when you hit that point? Like, right. <laughs> It's a little more strategic than that. It's more strategic. Each point has a has a, a direct channel. Right. Um. All right. I, it's a fun question though. Boy, I I I don't <laughs> think It's let, fun to I, have those. It's funny because it's her question started with I've heard of a form of distraction and in, in hypnobirthing it's all about methods of focus. Mm. It's truly right. a contrary approach to right. to the question it's overwhelming for women. They hear all these things, you know, they want to do what's going to work and and feel free to try everything, pack a comb in your bag, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and we're always looking for that magic bullet. You know, what's the
1: thing that's going to just like,
0: there's no right or wrong answer. It's just, (laughs) I wouldn't know how to teach it with the hypnobirthing methods. And you know, if you make it work, then be sure to tell me about it so I can learn about that. All right, next one. Every expecting
1: parent deserves access to a certified doula, no matter their budget, birth plan, or location. This is the idea behind the Digital Doula Program at Beautiful Births and Beyond. Their on-demand doula program includes access to online classes and 24-7 birthing and postpartum support via text or video. Book a free consultation with Beautiful Births founder Colleen Myatt and receive 20% off an hour of digital doula support. Visit beautifulbirths.com and use promo code Birth. Down to Birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Postpartum Soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, S-O-O-T-H-E dot com, and use
0: promo code Birth. Okay, the next question says, I just had the anatomy scan and my doctor basically congratulated me and told me I won't need any more ultrasounds during the rest of my pregnancy. This makes me feel anxious. First, I love seeing my baby and I can't believe I have to go four months without looking at him. Second, how do they really know everything is fine? Isn't it best if they keep checking him?
1: Well, I just want to say, hooray for this doctor who's not going to make her have any more ultrasounds because that means. You know, this is somebody who's not going to be measuring and saying your baby's too big or your fluid's too low or blah, 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 blah. So generally, once you have the anatomy scan and everything is normal, yes, unless something else comes up in the pregnancy that alerts your um, midwife or OB to a problem, you don't need any more ultrasounds. So no, you don't need to keep checking on the baby. Usually when we overcheck, we find things that
0: we don't need to find. That's exactly right ultrasounds are linked to people getting induced unnecessarily or being given some misinformation sometimes I think it's a really good sign that you might be with uh, a pretty evidence-based practicing provider if they're telling you you don't need any more and if you do need more then you'll know
1: right something might come up later in the pregnancy that will require an ultrasound to check on but if it doesn't come up then I think that's fabulous and as far as um Seeing your baby, of course, there are many ways to connect with your baby without visually seeing them on ultrasound. So I think, you know, focusing on some of those things that you can do at home, just tuning into your baby's movements, trying to learn their position, communicating with your baby through dreams, through meditation, through yoga. Talking to them when you're in the shower.
0: Playing music for them. Dancing with them. Reading them poetry. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I was going to say that this reminded me of something else. If you have an ultrasound every two weeks, then for 13 days in between those ultrasounds, you can panic if you want to, but like the, you have the best information you could possibly have. So maybe this is an opportunity to practice trust. You'll have to learn that lesson one way or another as a parent.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. Next question. I hate getting vaginal exams during pregnancy and dread having my OBs constantly put their hands inside me all through birth. How often do they really need to check? I guess I just want to say, first of all, that, you know, you should never have a vaginal exam without consent and agreement. Um, in, in some cases, women have a history of sexual assault or violence, and vaginal exams can be extremely traumatic. Um, And in... If that's not something you have disclosed in your prenatal care or your provider isn't aware of, a vaginal exam during labor can just create a traumatic birth experience. How often do they really need to check? This is a discussion that you can have with your midwife or OB uh, prenatally and, and express to them that you either don't want any vaginal exams unless they're absolutely indicated or you know the least amount of vaginal exams possible. If you are in labor, and your provider is suggesting that they need to examine you, if you, in that moment, feel like you can't handle an exam, it's okay to say no.
0: Absolutely. What I tell my clients is this. It's reasonable for your provider to check you when they first see you. So if you're having a home birth, and your home birth midwife arrives and wants to check you, it's not unreasonable for her to check you then. Or if you get to the hospital or the birthing center, it isn't unreasonable for them to check you. In fact, at a birthing center, they... They really like to do it because they want to make sure you're in very active labor before they admit you. Um, And then it's not unreasonable for them to check you one more time, which is when they hear you grunting and bearing down. They just want to make sure you're at least nine and a half or 10 at that point. Um, But vaginal exams are complicated emotionally as well. Trisha, I, I don't expect you to remember this, but there was a moment during my labor with Vanessa. You and Amy were there as my midwives, and the whole labor was five hours or so. Amy arrived first and checked me and I was at six centimeters. And then a couple, a few hours in, um, there was a moment where she came up to me in the tub and said, you know, do you just want me to check you and see where you are? And my response was no, because I can't bear to hear anything but 10. Mm -hmm. So it plays an emotional game with us or we get Mm -hmm. discouraged. Like, well, you're still, you're still six. Like what? I'm only six. So they're complicated. They don't even have to tell you how many centimeters you are.
1: Yeah, I mean, the the vaginal exam for the provider is convenient and it's helpful information, but it's mostly for their benefit in in sort of managing the progress of the labor. Um, For some women, they don't mind it, and they're happy to know if they've dilated one centimeter over the last two hours. So if you're that woman and you don't mind the vaginal exam and it actually is encouraging you, then great. But if it's something that feels... Like it's going to be emotionally harmful or, as we said, with a history of any kind of abuse um, or vaginal, chronic vaginal pain, even. If it's anything that's going to make you feel physically uncomfortable, there are ways to continue to effectively manage the labor and not have vaginal exams.
0: You're right. It is typically for them. And that's one reason that we have such a high rate of C-sections due to failure to progress or such high rates of augmentation, of labor augmentation with Pitocin. And I also wanted to add, after what I said earlier, you don't have to have any, as Tricia said. My own mentor has a general practice and has served over 2,500 women at home births so far, um, a general practice of not ever putting her hands inside of a woman throughout labor. Now, I can think of one case where she does, and I'm sure there might be a few, but like if fetal positioning seems to be an issue, she has an adjusting method where she can um, put her hands in and feel by the fontanelles, the front one being a diamond and the back one being a, um, a triangle, she can adjust the head slightly and it can allow for a very quick Uh, easy birth after she makes that adjustment. But otherwise, she just keeps her hands out. I asked her about this once. I said, how come you don't like to do vaginal exams? And she said, she said, Cynthia, in labor, everything is supposed to go down and out. And nothing is supposed to go up and in. (laughs) Well, who can argue with that?
1: I mean, I mean, I think it's a rare provider who will attend births without doing any vaginal exams. I, I have to For say, sure. as a as a provider, it's really, it takes a lot of patience and trust. To, you know, when you get to a birth and you need to know when to call the birth assistant, you need to know if you should fill the start filling the tub, if you should prepare the newborn, you know, start warming the blankets. There are lots of reasons that we need to sort of gauge where labor is. And vaginal exams are a great way to... Um, make that assessment. So they're helpful for sure for the provider. I'm just saying that if it is something that is really, if it's something that it really is uncomfortable for you, it is possible to, you can say no, you can always say no, you have to agree to a vaginal exam um, before your provider does one. And you can manage a birth from start to finish without ever doing one. It's just not, it's it's a lot more, it's a lot more challenging for the provider. Do you agree, Tricia, that two
0: is reasonable in many births.
1: Yeah, I think what you said about, you know, one, one to assess where you are in labor and one to ensure that it's, you are fully dilated, that's reasonable. But if for some reason between the first one and that last one, there's a, you know, 24 hours in between, you're probably going to want to do another one somewhere in there just to see if
0: things are moving at all and it can be helpful to see if the cervix is swollen and if that's why the labor is very long or something like that i mean it occasionally does make sense
1: yes in a in the case of like a a pushing phase that's taking a long time it is actually important to make sure that you're not damaging the cervix by pushing on a non-fully dilated cervix on a cervical lip or something like that but as i said and you know many women their babies are just coming down and they're feeling that urge to push and you can you can sense that the baby is low in the pelvis and it's through the cervix and you don't need a vaginal exam to know that
0: not always. Some women get them all during their prenatal visits. I mean it's sometimes it's really prevalent.
1: Well or it, they might get it um, they might get it from 37 weeks on every week. Let's see how your cervix has progressed. Um, some women really want to know that. They they're happy to have it. So this is it's very personal. All
0: right. The next one says, do you have any advice for women who are interested in getting educated before pregnancy about home birth?
1: So my advice on getting educated about home birth um, in pregnancy is to really just look at the data on the safety of home birth um, and to look at midwives in the area, to meet with the midwives in the area who provide home birth. We know that um, home birth, is a great option for low-risk, healthy women. Um, There have been enough studies now to demonstrate that the outcomes for babies and mom are excellent in home birth, planned home birth. Um, Home birth is meant to be a team effort, so it's important to have your home birth midwife who is collaborating with a, a, you know, has a backup plan in case you need additional medical intervention or in case you have a hospital transfer, coordination of care is one of the reasons that you know, helps keep home births safe. Um yeah, I mean, we're
0: all about home birth, right? Cynthia, do you have anything to add to that? Well, yeah, I would just say that anyone who's interested in home birth is likely coming from a place and if they aren't then their partner is of really wondering how safe it is. And there's no one to better answer that question than a home birth midwife. So just call whoever you have in your area and go for consultations and ask them those questions that you're kind of afraid to ask. Say, well what you know, what do you do if the cord is around the neck? What do you do if um I'm hemorrhaging? What's the plan if we have to get me to a hospital? And they're used to answering these questions. You won't offend them, you won't surprise them. They've heard it all and you have every right to feel assured. They will have answers to those questions.
1: Yeah, you just reminded me of, of the conversation we were having with Christy yesterday on our um IG live about she wanted to have a home birth, but her husband wasn't into the idea. And, you know, she said, I think he's just afraid. And I said, we said, yeah, that, of course, that's the reason. And it's the fear around home birth being unsafe and not realizing home birth midwives are very well trained at how to deal with all the, you know, the things that can go wrong in pregnancy. And they, they come with supplies and medications to manage some of the complications that could potentially come up, whether you're at home or at a birth center or in a hospital. There are very few things that happen in birth that are absolute emergencies, where we're talking, you know, minutes between a good outcome and a bad outcome. And even in the hospital, sometimes those things don't have the best outcome. And home birth midwives are particularly good at trusting when the birth process is still in the range of normal and when it's moving to a place of indicating that things may not be going well. They're so skilled at that because they... They know they have to make these decisions. They have to make timely decisions of when to transfer care. So their understanding of what's normal is actually this very wide circle, um, which helps mothers have better births because we're not intervening when
0: we don't need to intervene. Right. In that Instagram Live yesterday that we did with Christy, she was saying that her husband said absolutely not to a home birth. And my comment to her was when... A partner says absolutely not. It's evidence that the work hasn't been done yet because when you really research all the options, you have respect for all the options. If you think home birth midwives are out there being reckless and crossing their fingers and saying, you know, we're pretty sure this is going to go well, I promise you, you don't know what's going on in this industry because society is going to err on the side of favoring a doctor when things don't go well, but not a home birth midwife. So she has to do so much more to protect herself, to protect the line of work, to make sure you're safe and you'll be impressed and surprised at um, their qualifications, and you know, they show up with an oxygen tank in their bag, Pitocin in case there's hemorrhage, a stronger drug, right? Trisha, in case the Pitocin isn't effective. Mm-hmm. Um, we just, we, we, there's, the more you learn about home birth midwifery, it doesn't mean it's right for you, but at least you'll have respect for the field.
1: And just to add to that, one of the other things we said yesterday is that you know, a woman should give birth where she feels the safest. So if, if she does feel safe giving birth at home and has the appropriate care, then that's the safest place for her to give birth. If she feels like, ooh, a home birth would be great, you know, I love that idea, but, uh, you know, mentally she's just not really there and her partner's not really there, then maybe it's not the safest option for you. If you feel safer in a hospital or a birth center, then that is where you should be giving birth. Yeah.
0: If you're not feeling a little curiosity or inclination toward it, don't waste your time researching everything. But if you're curious, I do think you owe it to yourselves to to get some more information. So I I love it. She's preconception and she's already looking into this. It's just great. She's right on the ball (laughs) months and months before most of us. Well, thanks for the great questions.
1: Also, just um, many of you probably don't realize that we have uh, postpartum groups that are offered and prenatal support groups. As we're always saying that this is meant to be community. We want to hear your personal stories. We love it when you communicate with us. And if you're interested in joining a prenatal or a postpartum support group, just send us a message through the website or Instagram, and we will give you all the information you need to to join the community. If you enjoyed our podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share a favorite episode or two. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at down to birth show, or contact us and review show notes at downtownbershow.com Please
0: remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only It is in no way a substitute for medical advice For our full disclaimer visit slash disclaimer Thanks for tuning in and as always hear everyone and listen to yourself Well Great question. How how often did your great-great-great-grandmother get checked during her birth? Or the deer in the woods behind your house? Yeah, zero-